politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation with two great political parties, both of which have huge questions about their future. The core question about the Republican Party right now is, has it changed permanently because of Trump's tumultuous term in office? Will it continue to be a Trumpian party? Or if President Trump decides not to run for re-election, or if he fails to win the nomination if he runs for re-election, will the party change back to what it was? Uh, and for the Democrats, well, there are profound questions for the Democrats about the future of that party with a president of the United States who gives every indication that he plans to run, and yet very prominent Democrats in the Senate, in the House, in the bureaucracy of the party, in the National Committee, all saying, Joe, please don't. Uh, be, be happy with your accomplishments, in quotes, and uh, leave it to a uh, younger, fresher face. Uh, talking about that and what it means and the history and the future history of the Republican Party in particular, nobody better to talk to than Matthew Cottonetti, who has written uh, the best-selling book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. He is a senior fellow at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, where his work is focused on American political thought and history. He's also a prominent journalist who was the founding editor and the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, Matt, uh, given all of the back and forth right now, is it DeSantis a new front runner for the nomination, uh, or is Trump going to be an inevitable choice because of the reaction to Mar-a-Lago? There's so many questions. The core question is, do you believe that the Republican Party has permanently changed? Hi, Michael. Uh, I, I guess my answer to that question would be yes. I do think that there's no going back to the Republican Party pre-2015. I think when you look at the primary elections that have been held um, this cycle, uh, when you look at former President Trump's continued popularity, uh, among Republicans, uh, when you look at the fact that, um, you know, whether it's the, the Bush dynasty or the Cheney political dynasty, those have come to an end, the McCain political dynasty, those have come to an end. Um, I do think the Republican Party going forward will be much closer to the MAGA movement than, say, the um, compassionate conservatism uh, or the reform conservatism that preceded it. And uh, do you think, to to what extent is the MAGA movement have a separate life apart from President Trump as an individual? Well, there I think uh, is a very important point, which is that when we look at the history of populist movements throughout the United States, um, they are very personalized. There is a very personal connection between the leader and uh, his, or in the case of Sarah Palin, uh, her uh, constituencies. And so um, uh, I think the MAGA movement will be dominant uh, for as long as Donald Trump is present in our political life. 
Um, even then, though, even after Trump, if if we can even entertain such a possibility, uh, the Republican Party and conservative movement that remain will still be shaped by the experiences of uh, the last seven years and, and, and ongoing. And so when we look at, say, attitudes toward immigration, attitudes toward um, economic protection, or, or especially vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, attitudes toward foreign policy, I think those will be in place until another leader comes along who's able to uh, shake them up. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Speaking to Matthew Continetti, who is a senior fellow at uh, American Enterprise Institute. There's a, uh, a, a great deal of speculation having to do with the fact that I think to some extent that, that Trump has not immediately uh, re-announced his uh, candidacy. A uh, question about whether with all of the proceedings against him and a very likely, at least big possibility of being indicted by the Justice Department on the Espionage Act and the Presidential Records Act, and then he has problems in New York with his business, with his close associate, Alan Weisselberg, pleading guilty to 15 felonies and now willing to testify in the ongoing trial against the Trump organization, the Trump company. And uh, then additional problems to uh, with charges of interfering with the election in Georgia and on and on and on. Uh, I, I know that there's some argument that those charges against him by, quote, the swamp or government insiders uh, contribute to Trump's popularity and, and help to unite people behind him. Do you think there is a, a meaningful chance that he will continue to try to influence the party, but as something other than a presidential candidate? I do think there's something of a chance there, and for the reason that you mentioned. Uh, right now, uh, Trump's legal fees are being paid, uh, at least in part, by the Republican National Committee. And that arrangement will cease the moment that uh, former President Trump becomes a declared candidate for office. And that may be one reason why he is delaying uh, his announcement. Another reason may be that some of these polls, Michael, we've been seeing aren't too good for some of Trump's uh, uh, picks, his Senate-endorsed candidates. And I think he's a little bit worried that if he announces before the midterm elections and the Republicans do not do as well um, as they might otherwise uh, have, th have been thought to have done, he might take the blame. Um, and then, of course, there's the third reason, which, which you point out, which is, He's got a lot on his mind. <laughs> he has a lot of different um, legal jeopardy uh, uh, mounting from various corners. Now, he's been through all this before, um, but uh, I'd say in the case of the, uh, the National Archives and Records Administration, uh, he probably has the most direct legal challenge he's faced since he entered politics. Um, and th that may be um, occupying his attention uh, rather than focusing on building a, a campaign team. Uh, the result, though, is that right now the race for the 2024 Republican nomination is pretty much frozen in place. Do you think that uh, DeSantis is the only realistic uh, alternate possibility? 
I think uh, at the moment uh, that's that's uh, yes, I think that's true, um, and that's in a situation where Trump is still kind of hovering off the coast of the of the <laughs> GOP primary, like you know a big storm. Um, DeSantis clearly is uh, uh, the choice um, uh, to get to incorporate many of the Trump uh, movements, um, modifications to conservatism, its changes in attitudes, its changes in some degree policy, uh, while also uh, having a politician who's more in the uh, conventional mode. You know, there, there aren't going to be many wild tweets from a president, DeSantis. Um, there's going to be a focus more on on governing rather than um, kind of media controversies. Uh, however, if Trump doesn't run, um, I do think then the field be- becomes much wider and uh, a lot of um, uh, jockeying and tumult uh, will ensue. Uh, but right now, it's I think it's clear that Trump is a front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024 and DeSantis is uh, in second place for sure and moves to first if Trump isn't isn't running. Yeah, and of course, as you probably know, the Washington Post, Aaron Blake, who does the power broker estimations, uh, now is arguing that DeSantis is the front runner. Uh, so what does the change in the Republican Party mean for its long-time success, long-term success? We'll continue the conversation with Matthew Continetti, author of The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And on the Michael Medved Show, in the past, uh, the Republican Party has been changed profoundly by candidates named Goldwater even though he lost, and he lost badly. And, uh, of course, later on by somebody who supported Barry Goldwater strongly in 1964, Ronald Reagan, who changed the party and remade it uh, to a great extent in his image. Has the Trump uh, remaking of the Republican Party been a uh, long-term success? Well, we have had a long-term since that remaking of the party yet to measure. We're talking about all of that with the historian of the conservative movement in the United States, uh, the author of the best-selling book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. His name is Matthew Continenti. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. And uh, he is also the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Um, Matthew, uh, one of the things that uh, was fascinating in a a very long, well-reported, it seemed, article in uh, the New York Times Magazine by Robert Draper, who's written numerous books about uh, Republicans and the conservative movement. Uh, Draper was shocked at seeing that among Arizona Republicans, particularly that group of Arizona Republicans who swept the primaries, who were all endorsed by President Trump, that they expressed hostility to democracy, uh, to the word democracy, insisting that America is not a democratic system, insisting that uh, the, the country is a republic. And of course, they're right. But is that a 
a smart political strategy to reject the term democracy? Well, I'd say it's a puzzling strategy. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure what's behind it. I know, uh, as you say, Michael, I mean, technically, it's correct. I mean, America, is, it's not a publicitary democracy. We're not a majoritarian democracy. We're a constitutional republic um, and a representative democracy. Um, but uh, I, I think, uh, too, that some of these uh, conservatives or Republicans who make that point are responding to liberals and Democrats who are always saying that whatever Republicans propose is a threat to democracy. And so they're kind of being, you know, um, uh, pedantic and kind of saying, well, it's not really democracy and let's focus on the issues. I will say this, that there are many people who are concerned about the state of American democracy. And I would say, too, that it's not just Democrats who are concerned about the state of American democracy. Uh, there are plenty of conservatives. I think that uh, we can contrast this, though, with um, one of the figures you mentioned in the intro, uh, President Reagan, who really based his entire worldview on, on democracy, and in, including constitutional republics, and supported democracy throughout the world. This was also a big theme of George W. Bush's presidency. But we can see now how the Republican Party has changed, um, especially under President Trump, uh, to one where um, democracy is not emphasized and sometimes when it's brought up, it's kind of corrected and saying, "Well, look, we're not a we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic, and and uh, let's move on to to the to the next issue." I, I think it doesn't part of the resistance to the idea of democracy go to two of the most sensitive issues before the country right now. Number one is abortion, and number two is uh, guns, and uh, the. The Democrats say, and they have all kinds of polling to back them up, and even some electoral history, like the vote just happened in Kansas, that uh, America does not want, I mean, there's overwhelming opposition to a restriction on abortion for any abortion after just six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, most people say that uh, in the early stages of pregnancy there there ought to be more accommodation at least to some desire for abortion and again if you're looking for a means of satisfying this or adjusting this now that the Supreme Court has said that there's no constitutional right to life there there's no constitutional right to abortion okay and then when it comes to guns uh, they're there seems to be overwhelming support for at least moderate increases in uh, firearm restrictions. And that's something that's very constitutionally sensitive and, and otherwise sensitive for Republicans. Do you think that the, the questioning of democracy goes to those two issues and, and maybe a few others? It's possible, and um, you know, this is one era now which where conservatives and Republicans are in a kind of a, an unusual place, at least historically speaking, which is that the Supreme Court is on their side. And, you know, for much of the history of the last hundred years, the Supreme Court has been in the engine of liberal and progressive reform, and uh, it's only now um, that. Uh, conservatives and Republicans have a majority on the court, and the court is willing to reverse significant precedents, such as Roe v. Wade. 
uh, because those precedents do not conform with an originalist understanding of the Constitution. I think I think a lot of this democracy talk has to do more with uh, structural issues like, say, gerrymandering or the Voting Rights Act or the um, movement to abolish the Electoral College or to admit new states that you see uh, coming from segments of the left. And then the conservative response is, well, you're messing with the constitutional order. Um, and and for that, in order to respond, you have to say, well, we're not a major, majoritarian democracy. We're this constitutional republic. That's what we want to defend the Constitution. And just, you know, the other day in the New York Times, you had two law professors, one from Harvard, the other from Yale, saying, well, it's time to ditch the Constitution. <laughs> I think that's the type of thing that begins uh, worrying both sides and and gets informs a lot of this heated rhetoric around democracy. Um, I, I only wish we could have we would spend more time thinking through the policy implications of some of the issues you're you're, you're talking about, whether it's a, a, the right to life or whether it's the Second Amendment rights. Um, it's when we talk about these larger structural changes that many people are proposing. Um, uh, that that the democracy talk uh, heats up. Do you think there needs to be some kind of adjustment in terms of the electoral college, given uh, the uh, uh, basically the some of the uh, outrage on the left of um, oh winning uh, winning an election of popular vote by over three million in uh, 2016 and then losing the electoral college by 306 to 232 which is coincidentally exactly the same margin by which biden won well that is a question to get to at another time many of these questions raised and answered in matt Continetti's book the right the hundred year war for american conservatism uh, we'll be right back uh coming up talking about biden's latest bid to pay off student loans. Yeah, as a government. We'll get to that and more coming up. Michael Medved show a uh, an angry email uh, which uh, we can come to terms with I hope uh, it's from uh, uh, David who uh, writes in Michael you claim there are two great political parties this is an objectively false statement on two fronts first of all neither the Democrat or Republican Party are great both are disgusting anti-american entities that seek only to enrich themselves and the members of their elite ruling class. The Democrat Party wants to turn the USA into the USSA, Union of Soviet Socialist America, is that what he means? While the Republican Party wants nothing more than to run as the minority so they can fail to deliver on anything they promise. On the second front, there's really only one uniparty, and the fact that Donald Trump, who was not a member of that uniparty, won the election without their permission, infuriated the uniparty to the point where they and their useful idiots like you 
want to make an example of him so no one dares take power without their permission ever again. Uh, okay, what when when he suggests the the idea that both major parties are run by flawed people, he's correct, they are. Most human beings are flawed. I mean, I, I, I very much have that idea of uh, basically the way humanity conducts itself, certainly political leaders and the way that uh, they conduct themselves. But the notion that the Democratic Party only wants to transform the USA into something unrecognizable, into something like the Soviet Union, and the Republican Party is only interested in uh, collecting money uh, so they can fail to deliver on anything they promise. Uh, look, I, uh, I believe that Republican presidents in the past have made real contributions to this country. And when you talk about fixing our tax system, as bad as our tax system is now, the fact that we have a top tax rate now, it's 39.6%, I believe, is the top rate. The top rate when Ronald Reagan became president was 70%. 70%. The top rate when John Kennedy became president was 90%, and he lowered it. And the fact that Reagan did that with, um, t together with cooperation from... Uh, over a hundred Democrats voted for the Reagan tax change in 1986, which changed all of that. And then again, as recently as the early 90s or the mid 90s, actually, during uh, Clinton's first term, there was welfare reform, which has been one of the great successes in all of American history, uh, changing the idea into welfare for work rather than rewarding a lack of work. And the welfare reform was passed by the Newt Gingrich Republicans in Congress and signed by President Clinton. Uh, the, the idea that uh, the two parties are horribly corrupt, I, I, I would just urge you, uh, I, I don't know, David, because you didn't, put that on the information. That information was passed to me where you were writing in from. But uh, again, your idea that uh, America is degraded and horrible and wretched and ruined, uh, there are so many things in our lives that we ought to be grateful for. And the level of choice that Americans still have, the ability of most Americans who want to work can find jobs right now. That is one of those things. And yes, the gas prices are too high, though I was thrilled to actually get gas for four fifty nine a gallon. And I know that compared to what it used to be, that's but it's it's somewhat better. And the truth is that in a summertime, the choices that are open to Americans in where to live and how to live remain remarkable. And this idea that we are at the verge of uh, losing our entire political system 
goes against the fact that people are more involved. They are more participatory. We just had an election in 2020 where we had the highest level of participation since uh, uh, 1908 was the last time we had a comparable level of participation. And the only reason it was so much there then, so much higher then, was because there were so many fewer people who were eligible to vote. Women weren't. And uh, uh, people of color were largely restricted. This comes in from uh, Jeff. And he says, I know you think Trump is bad for the future of the GOP, but his popularity goes beyond the GOP. His rise to power has more to do with the pathetic leadership in D.C. and the rhinos that are in place now. I would love to see the GOP die with Trump than continue on the leadership they have in place now. Wait, if Trump isn't the leader of the GOP now, who is? I, I don't understand. It's better to start over with leadership that are actually in touch with the everyday American. Okay, uh, the, the idea that... Uh, I, I do not know what Jeff would have in mind in terms of talking about rhinos who are leaders of the GOP. Uh, the people who normally were indicted for being rhinos, a bunch of them have just lost their primaries. And uh, the leadership of Trump with the GOP, it's very hard to look at the state of the GOP and not to blame Donald Trump for it if uh, you think it's having a tough time. Who picked the candidates who are having so much trouble actually competing for Senate seats? People like Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz and J.D. Vance, though there's a new poll for J.D. Vance that shows him moving ahead and uh, holding the seat in Ohio. And moving ahead at the same time, Governor DeWine is moving ahead with his gubernatorial race in Ohio, which is increasingly a reliably Republican state. But uh, the, the idea that Donald Trump actually pulled the GOP into its ability to win elections, in both 2016 and in 2020, Republican candidates for the House of Representatives got a higher percentage of the vote and by a lot than President Trump did. And we're talking about popular votes. We're talking about all across the country. For instance, in 2016, Wisconsin was incredibly close and, and President Trump barely won. One of the reasons he won is because Ron Johnson, who's now running for re-election in Wisconsin, strong supporter of President Trump, but Ron Johnson pulled him across the finish line. He did much better. He won by about five points. Marco Rubio won in Florida. Trump won by 1%. Marco Rubio won by 8%. And if you go and take a look at the Senate candidates and the other people that you were deriding as uh, being rhinos, they did better than Trump. And part of that had to do with the fact that uh, uh, for some of those people were incumbents who were well-established and had built up connections with their local electorate. Rob Portman in Ohio was another one who did better than Trump in his state. And if you look at the congressional vote in general, the congressional vote returning the Republican majority in the House of Representatives that then existed, that, uh, that majority got a higher percentage of the popular vote 
then presidential candidate Donald Trump. Coming up, uh, Portland, Oregon, once one of the safest cities in America. What's happened to the murder rate and the homicide rate? And I think we can figure out why. Coming up. Does politics matter? Yeah, I think politics matters. And uh, one example would be what has happened to Portland, Oregon, which um, for many, many years had been rated one of the most livable cities in the country. Uh, it is a beautiful city. It is a city that had one of the lowest murder rates in the country. For uh, 20 years, for 2000 till 2019, the city averaged 21 murders a year. Now, when you look at other cities that have comparable population to Portland, like St. Louis, uh, the homicide rate is 10, 15 times more. It's just hugely, hugely different. And uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal. It says Portland faces challenges as it struggles to bring down its homicide rate. Because I mentioned that uh, 21 homicides uh, a year that uh, had been the average in 2021, obviously the last year for which numbers are complete, it had gone from 21 killings a year to 88 which is appalling just appalling after portland had a record number of homicides last year city leaders invested six million dollars this is the wall street journal in nonprofit programs and formed a new police unit both intended to reduce shootings the result oregon's largest city has had 56 homicides as of August 16th. Uh, seven fewer than it had at this time last year, but far, far above its average for the past two decades. And again, what is going on? Well, what is going on here has been cutting back on police spending. They eliminated, they had a special unit that uh, had been actually doing a very good job in keeping the homicide rate low, that average of 21 homicides a year. Of course, it's 21 too many, but still in a big city, that's remarkable. That makes Portland one of the safer cities in the world. And which, by the way, goes to the point that, yes, you can have public safety and still have a lot of private gun ownership because there are lots and lots of people in Oregon who own guns. But uh, Portland was long among the safest cities in the country, averaging the 21 homicides between 2000 and 2020. But they got rid of this special anti-shooting and anti-gang unit because it turned out that many of the people that they were taking care of and uh, arresting and investigating were people of color. And that was considered unacceptable. The, uh, as a result of the public pressure, the Portland City Council voted to cut $15 million from the police department's 
$244 million budget in 2020, and it eliminated the 38-person team focused exclusively on gun violence, which city leaders criticized for alleged racial profiling. Homicides jumped immediately to 57 a year as opposed to 21, and then to 88 in 2021. In July of this year, in other words, last month, the uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler of Portland announced an emergency declaration to address rising gun violence and promised an additional $2.4 million for uh, violence intervention efforts. But that doesn't make up for the $15 million they cut before. The police department is now working to identify and target the people most likely to be involved in shootings. But it is a delicate issue in Portland where public pressure previously forced the city to ditch a database of gang members over criticism that residents uh, who weren't actually members of gangs were being added to the database. The... uh, idea that uh, it is the idea has been according to critics uh, that uh, they're going to unfairly brand individuals Uh, but the chief of police said that uh, such a program has the potential to bring down shootings they're going to come back with that idea of a database for people involved in gang activity and speaking of people involved in gang activity and and this is one of those things where one of the the items that I think is legitimately brought up about failings in both political parties we're talking about that is is the uh, desire to basically forgive things that shouldn't be forgiven if the people who are performing those unforgivable actions are on your side politically the headline in the New York Post, which, by the way, very conservative newspaper, uh, a very pro-Trump newspaper and generally siding Republican, headline, two men convicted in Governor Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot. Two ringleaders in the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, were found guilty by a federal jury today. Uh, Barry Croft and Adam Fox were convicted on charges of kidnapping conspiracy as well as conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. They had other convictions as well. The convictions come after an earlier case against the two men ended uh, on a mistrial because the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. This time they agreed. Both of these guys face life in prison. You can't just strap uh, on an AR-15 and body armor and go snatch the governor, said the assistant U.S. attorney, Nils Kessler, in his closing speech to the jury. But that wasn't the defendant's ultimate goal, Kessler said. They wanted to set off a second American civil war, a second American revolution, something they called the Boogaloo. And they wanted to do it for a long time before they settled on targeting Governor Whitmer. Now, how do we know this? because they sent messages to each other and we have the electronic messages and they actually have some phone messages as well the pair along with several other men planned to kidnap Whitmer at her vacation home ostensibly over anger stemming from coronavirus restrictions federal prosecutors said the crew had surveyed the uh, Democratic governor's home and conducted field training exercises to practice combat tactics 
to prepare for the ambush to kidnap the governor. They were arrested after four of them met with an undercover FBI agent to buy $4,000 in explosives for the scheme. The plot was initially reported to the feds by an army vet who had joined this paramilitary group, but who uh, had a, a flash of conscience when he became alarmed when they started talking about killing police. Thank God for that. Defense attorneys argue that Croft and Fox were victims of entrapment and that the two were just big talkers who were simply vetting. Yeah, but if you're going to spend $4,000 that you provided to buy ammunition, it's more than just big talk. Uh, Croft and Fox face life imprisonment at uh, their sentencing. Two other men charged in the scheme were acquitted last spring because in their case the evidence was uh, that they much more were involved with talk but no action. But uh, two more pleaded guilty including these two who were involved in actually taking actions to make their crazed uh, scheme go forward. The question would be there's been some sympathy for uh, people who take this point of view, for the whole Boogaloo movement. And uh, the, the Boogaloo, the, the, they get the title from a movie called Electric Boogaloo, which is uh, not one of the great movies of all time. But basically, the idea being that what we need in America is a civil conflict, a race war. There were Boogaloo boys, so-called, who were there on January 6th. Some of the people who pleaded guilty have been part. And again, the Boogaloo movement has led to uh, the death of a security guard and to others who have been shot by crazed people who have this idea that uh, America is so hopelessly corrupt, so degraded, uh, so dominated by some kind of evil conspiratorial power that it, it absolutely needs a, uh, a civil conflict. That is ignorant and it's crazy. And uh, it so is, by the way, speaking of ignorant and crazy, the scheme of paying billions of dollars to pay off student loan debt that people say uh, they can no longer handle personally. We will get to that, which is a hugely controversial initiative by Joe Biden, and more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.